Okay, so we're talking about the um, participant section, this is section 9 in your ethics form. So the first part asks you to explain how you intend to recruit participants and asks you to go you know, into as much detail as you possibly can. So one of the things is if you are recruiting students from the wider college or you want to ask students across the whole of the institution, then you might need permission to from I think it's Senate office or from the uh, from the um, dean of learning and teaching in each college if you want to write to students across the whole college. The, um, the point of this is that someone has a bit of an overview of how often our students are getting surveyed or recruited for research to avoid and over, over uh, researching students. So, <clears throat> so that's the permissions out of the way. And there will be, and I can share on, on Moodle and in the resources, uh, more links to this. So there are a lot of different sampling techniques out there. And I'm going to talk about a couple of um, non-probability sampling techniques because I think they are the most likely ones that you might use. So for instance, um, one of the most commonly used ones, I think, just from, um, okay, this might be my observational bias coming in here, but from observation is that it's probably convenient sampling. And convenient sampling basically means um, you get the participants that actually participate. You know, I, I know um, if you're asking for student feedback, for instance, your student feedback is quite often convenient sampling, but beca because it's just whoever gives feedback gives feedback. And therefore the actual um, responses you get are not necessarily representative of the whole cohort because it was, you know, basically in sometimes sometimes also called accidental sampling, and it could just be that you have one year where you have some students that are really upset with the course, and some students who really really love the course, and they are on both ends of the scale, and you get quite emotive, emotional feedback on your course from both sides of the scale, and nothing in between. Um, it can be other things. So it's it's really uh, basically you get who you get, and this happens when you send out your questionnaire to your to your cohort, and then whoever answers answers, and also your cohort. There might be a reason why you've chosen this particular cohort, but it might also just be ease of access. It's the same with asking asking students for quest, um for interviews and so. So convenient sampling tends to be what happens most often. Um, you can also have things like um, like what's called judgmental sampling or purposeful sampling. So in this case, you actually choose who would be appropriate for your study. So for instance, we did a big study with all um, this um, graduate teaching assistants, GTAs, in our institutions. And we intentionally only wrote to 
participants that we are on the register as um, graduate teaching assistants because we wanted this purpose sampling of a very specific cohort. And this might be something if you are asking a class, but you're not asking the whole year cohort, but you're maybe only asking one subgroup of this because you have done something in the classroom, you have tried something new and you wanted feedback on this before you roll it out to everyone else, that would be a purposeful sampling. Um, there are other things as well. So a case study, for instance, um, this is something that can happen quite regularly and a case study is often um, defined by a relatively small group size because you want to look into something in more depth. So, for instance, you might be someone who has a relatively small cohort of master students and implemented a work placement, um, change to their work placement with building in reflections and, 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 and you want to really understand what is the learning the students get out of this? How do the employers think about it? And you want to really dig deeper. So you would have a case study where you involve the specific students and the specific employers in one case to explore how that one change you implemented has impacted on them. So as I said, there are, yeah, I'm just looking at the lists and I'm thinking, but there are lots of different sampling techniques out there. And my assumption at the moment would be that purposeful sampling, accidental sampling or convenience sampling and case studies are probably the, um, the, most, um, the most common ones you would use. Um, <clears throat> there are some things you need to think about. So um, what I just tried to explain with the with the feedback for your courses, you know, the, the end of course feedback is that this actually quite often introduces a self-selection bias. So it is basically the participants who are willing to volunteer to do that. And this can happen to you um, particularly with the with the convenience sampling as well is that well you get your volunteers and sometimes you might already know who these students are who volunteer to participate in something like that and you need to take this into consideration it doesn't make your research invalid or it doesn't invalidate it but you need to think about that as a potential for your data so that there might be a self-selection bias in the data so there are lots of different other techniques like cluster sampling, uh, multi-stage sampling, quota sampling, simple random sampling. So um, if you find that the things I've just mentioned won't apply for you and you want to try something else, I'll share some more literature and links with you so you can have a look at all the different sampling techniques. But sampling is not yet all. So we've talked about maybe needing permissions for approaching our students. We've talked about how to actually sample and recruit the participants. And you need to explain why you're sampling them or why you, why you use the sampling technique you've chosen. And, um, 
and how that may or may not impact on your research data. The um, other section you have to fill in is the target participant group. And I talked about that earlier in terms of risks is are these students or staff at the university? Are they all adults over 18 year olds and competent? Are they adults over 18 year olds, but they may not be competent to give consent? Young people from 16 to 17 years old and children under 16 years old. So you'll have to talk about that. And another thing of it is if there are any financial incentives or any incentives of some sort to ask the students to participate. I had actually someone uh, from a research integrity background tell me that there was a study out that uh, someone <laughs> offered offered the students an additional A grade if they participated in their research. Yes, no, do not do this wrong. Move back to start. Um, you can, and we've done this before. So for instance, I've ran a big project um, for, uh, it was all around exam support at the institution. And we wanted to understand um, where the students felt gaps in communication were and what was important for them and so on. And to attract students to the nominal group technique, uh, we basically offered pizza. Um, so we had uh, we scheduled it over lunch, we had some budget and we got pizzas in and we ran a lunchtime session with pizza and it was probably my most best attended and well attended um, research sessions I ever ran. So pizza is a trick. However, um, this doesn't really count as a financial incentive. Uh, and but what it created actually. So so you could so okay if you're doing something like this, if someone is really cynical or understands under how much financial pressure some students can be, having a free meal could actually be quite a strong incentive. But you can also counter-argue that, that actually having these lunch sessions and offering some pizza created a really, a really um, calm and friendly atmosphere. And there was already a lot of talk and a lot of bonding in the room and it put the participants at ease and that meant they were very very engaged in the nominal group technique they had really strong debates and we are thinking we are really thinking in depth about the different the different aspects we were talking about and part of that session also was um, students creating material for other students like um so for exam preparation, some learning tips, bookmarks, and something like this um, that we then printed and developed and shared with the students. So actually, on one side, yes, you offered an incentive, and there may be some issues with offering this incentive. However, the positive effects of this incentive um, outweigh that. And also the... Um, it's not always mutual exclusive. So a benefit to a participant and a benefit to you doesn't necessarily mean this is not ethical, but you need to be transparent about it. And the benefits cannot be of such a size or such an impact that 
they would that they would basically count as a bribe. You know, if you offer students uh, a free lunch, if you offer them a twenty pound uh, book bookshop voucher or a ten pound coffee shop voucher, these are things that are beneficial to the participants, but they are not beneficial enough to to basically make someone behave in an unethical way. If you offer them a hundred thousand pounds, that might be a different. So these are and and this is why it also says uh, other than so when you have to talk in your ethics form about financial incentives or inducements, it says other than reasonable expenses and compensation for time. So some research projects that are well funded can um, offer the participants a compensation for their time and pay their travel costs costs and so. But quite often we don't have that much funding available. So all we can do is sometimes there's a little lottery where you can win a, a, a more substantial Amazon voucher or what we have decided before, we'd rather give every, everyone else a smaller book voucher. So um, we gave everyone a smaller book voucher instead of just having two or three people having the chance to win a big one in the raffle. So anyway, but these are the things you need to talk about. I'm waffling on today. I need way more coffee. It's Monday morning. Okay, so bear with me. We have two two more elements of this participant section to go through. So we've talked about this, um, the financial inducement. The other one is the number of participants. So you need to provide the number of participants. And I know that can be tricky because you basically say, well, I might send my questionnaire out to my uh, 500 people strong undergraduate cohort, but if I'm lucky, I have 20 who answer. So what you would do is you basically um, either judge how many students you anticipate to actually participate or how many students or or colleagues or you know other participants you you expect realistically roughly to participate or if you run um, interviews or focus groups with a relatively small student cohort and you have a good judgment that most of your students will participate, what you can then say is the aim is for all 30, you know, uh, students to participate in that. And then if there are only 20 or 25 answering, that is okay. It's just that you are aware of roughly how much data you get because all of that and also links to data storage, to privacy issues. It also links to your own workload. You know, there is quite a difference if you transcribe five interviews or 10 interviews um, or if you analyze 100 versus 200 questionnaires. So it is, you know, these are all things you need to take into consideration. And the last section of the participant information is if you are in a dependent relationship, um, uh, if the participants are in a dependent relationship with any of the investigators. And that is something we basically already talked about in the risk section. So if you are marking your, your students, so if you are a teacher, student-teacher relationship is one of those uh, a student and supervisor, employee, employer, and so on, then you have to say, yes, 
and in how far that is a dependent relationship and what you're do, going to do to mitigate that risk of this dependency in the relationship. So for instance, um, two of my courses where I'm working with students and ask them to participate, I only will send out all the, the um, basically research-related things after the assessment is done and the marking has been moderated so that the quality assurance processes have been in place, marking was moderated, and after that, um, I approach my, my students to participate in the project. So <clears throat> these are also things you can put into place. I know earlier on we talked about you can ask someone else to run focus groups or, or interviews for you. Um, yeah, so there are different, different ways of going about it. So I am sorry that is a really long section, but the whole participant thing in the ethics form is quite big. So, and this is today's, this week's topic. So hope that is useful. And I wasn't rambling too much and I'm going to make a coffee now. Speak later.